Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman. The Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture has just opened in Washington, D.C. Chico's own photographer and author, Douglas Keister, has had 60 of his photographs selected for inclusion in this new museum. Doug grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska, and in the mid-1960s acquired over 250 negatives of Lincoln places and people, mostly African-American. He saved them over the years as he went on to become a professional photographer and author of books on cemeteries and architecture and a memoir about growing up in the heartland of America. In its series, Images of America, Arcadia Publishing collected Doug's photographs in a book. Lincoln in Black and White, 1910-1925. to Douglas Keister, welcome. Always good to be here. Thank you. I feel like I should say, welcome Sherlock Holmes, (laughs) because that's really what you did in compiling this book, this uh, book that you put together and the exhibit for Washington. Right, right. It's been a a 50-year, that's five-zero, half-century journey between when I discovered these photographs and now that they're to the Smithsonian. So, in other words, you're a young kid. Um, <laughs> I was a, a baby when they were found. No, I was a, I was a, a teenager in high school when they were found. But you were already interested in photography right, at the right, time. Right, right. Um, a, a, a friend of mine was um, an antique collector, and he – I was a budding photographer, and he went to uh, the equivalent of a garage sale and purchased these uh, big stack of glass negatives – and subsequently um, sold them to me um, so I could practice. You know, uh, that, that way I didn't have to take photos. I, could, I, I really liked the darkroom process and, uh, because it was kind of magic to me. And so this guy says, here, uh, Doug, you're interested in photography. What about these, these plates, these glass plates? Right, right. Uh, and, and for those that don't know, a glass plate is the same as a, glass, you know, a film. It's the same thing, it's just an, on glass. And that's what they used to use a lot of. A hundred years ago, and he he got these, and he 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 had been told this guy this guy his name was Doug Boylson. Um, he was he collected phonographs and the old wind up Edison phonographs, and he was told by somebody that these in these stack of plates was a picture of a little girl on a phonograph. So he bought them kind of without even knowing that, and and uh, with with the trust that it would be there. And sure enough, one of the pictures that I found in the stack of negatives was a little girl and a photograph, an African-American girl. With a phonograph. Yes, phonograph, yeah. And the fact that they're glass really astounds me because when I was growing up, my parents had a record collection of these, before vinyl was invented, these records that were very fragile. They weren't glass, but I don't think any of those records survived. By the time us kids played with them, Yeah. yeah. I, and so it's amazing that all these plates survive. It is because they were um, literally stacked up in they were five inches by seven inches, and they were stacked up in shoeboxes. And so the you know no particular care went into their preservation. As a matter of fact, like a negative, um, you know once you your parents may have taken the picture or you took a picture, you're kind of done with that negative. You kind of threw it in a box somewhere. Uh, really wasn't intended to ever be printed again. Uh, rarely did that happen. So these were just stacked up in somebody's garage. And you had no clue as to their provenance. You didn't know who these people were. No, no. Um, did you have any clue? How do you even begin? Or were you even curious who oh, these people I was, were? I've, <laughs> anybody that knows me, I've been <laughs> You're curi- curious about everything. I've been curious about everything. And um, In fact, how many books have you written I've out written, of the total uh, to date? Yeah, 44. 44, 44 books you've written because you come in, become interested in something and off you go. <laughs> off I go. I've got three more in the works. So. <laughs> so. You're going to be getting to 50 novels and, yeah, and, and, and uh, uh, books have, on yeah. history, architecture. Yeah. Anyway, so, so this story then, you're curious about who the right. heck are these people? So, so some of the first pictures, I mean, I could tell even though it's a negative, you know, kind of what it was. Some of the first pictures I could tell what they were, were buildings in like in Nebraska. And some of them were construction photos of buildings downtown. So with the aid of, um, you know, some historians in Lincoln, we were able to date the pictures because a building picture, boy, that's, you know, that's a really good timestamp. 
and um, and also you know the style of dress and things like that. So we were able to date the photographs from about 1910 to 1925. So that's what's on the cover of your book, this right. uh, edition of Images of America, Lincoln in black and white, 1910 to 1925. So that's how you're able, by looking at these construction sites, right, right. photographs of the construction, you say, okay, here's when this was early 20th century. Right, and, and also, you know, I didn't pay much attention to the pictures of people. For one thing, they were negative, so it wasn't that easy to tell, but I could tell that they were a mixture of African Americans and also white people. But it was the, the pictures of people were kind of like when you go to the antique store and you, you see these bins of old photographs. You're curious for a minute, but they're not your relatives, you know, nobody you know. Um, so you just kind of set them aside. That, but it know. seems that represented the, in the photographs that the black population was more represented than they were in the general population of Lincoln, Nebraska. Right. That was that was really interesting. Why is, were there so many um, African Americans? So in the photograph, and not in the and general population. In, yeah, the of general Lincoln, population, Nebraska. maybe five percent. So, but these were you know maybe ninety percent in the photographs. Um, but you know, once again, um, we didn't. You know, there wasn't much curiosity about that. I, you know, I was a budding photographer. I kind of moved on to other things and nothing, they were set aside, the, the glass negatives, for about 30 years. My guest is Douglas Keister, and he has a collection of photographs, and he's been telling us how he acquired this collection of negative, these plates, and he collected them in a book called Lincoln referring to Lincoln, Nebraska, in black and white. And 60 of his photographs have been selected for inclusion in the new National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. So these, these photographs sit in your childhood home in Lincoln, Nebraska. Right. You go off to California. And so how did you even think to... Who was it that right, right. said, hey, Doug? Well, yeah. <laughs> Eventually, the, the the negatives did make it to California. When I, on a trip back to Nebraska, I picked them up and, and took them back. They weigh about 50 pounds. I mean, there's a, no small thing. But in 1999, a somebody in Lincoln, Nebraska, was doing research on uh, the African-American neighborhood. And... They discovered 36 glass negatives in somebody's closet. Um, the, the historical society got wind of that. Um, they looked at the negatives and determined they weren't anything ordinary at all. They were extraordinary photographs. And the Lincoln, Nebraska paper, the Lincoln Journal Star, um, did an article on— But you're here in California. I'm in you California. don't read the Lincoln paper, do I don't you? Read, no, my mother does, though. <laughs> so my mother saw the article, clipped it out sent it to me in California, just with a little note going, um, don't you have some old glass negatives? Not even associating what was in the paper with what I had. I looked at the, the uh, four or five pictures in the paper and I went, the backgrounds look similar. And, and sure enough, I got in touch with the, some historians in Lincoln and they verified that what I had were the same, taken by the same hand. You know, the same background, the same style. And and, and then shortly thereafter, uh, the Historical Society proclaimed that the pictures I had were a state treasure. I mean, well, you even thank your eagle-eyed mother. Yeah, mother. Yeah, if, it wasn't for, if it wasn't for my mother reading the paper and taking the time to clip out that article, none of this would have ever happened. Probably would have been still sitting in your closet, yeah, stacked up there, forgotten. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that has happened with a lot of other things. With You know, other people have. They don't know. Until there is a seminal moment, they just sit there. But this was the seminal moment. <laughs> so with this article, you find out, oh, maybe I've got something here, but you still don't know anything about it. So how do you go about tracking down any of these people in these photographs? Well, I, I really um, have to thank the city historian, a guy by the name of Ed Zimmer. In fact, his name is also on the cover of this book, Images of America, Lincoln in Black and White, uh, your name and his name, because yeah. he is in Lincoln yes. and is a historian. He is a historian for Lincoln. He's also um, on other commissions, works for the city government. 
but he is even a more of a know-it-all than I am. <laughs> it's hard to believe. <laughs> and once he gets sinks his teeth into something, he has to find out. And he and his staff um, started um, interviewing people in the African American community, trying to find out, you know, does anybody recognize this picture? And sure enough, after a, a, a couple years, actually, of, of looking, he identified um, the actual photographer, um, a woman. Um, by the name of Foley, um, saw one of the pictures that Ed showed her and said, Johnny Johnson took our picture. And sure enough, um, there were more, more things started getting revealed, and we discovered that an African-American photographer who was the son of a Civil War veteran um, took the photographs. And they're, all I can tell you is, I mean, that was a revelation. And, and when that happened... You know, more people started coming forward and identifying the pictures. And uh, the Smithsonian, um, somebody at the Smithsonian actually got an early preview of them, um, a guy named Lonnie Bunch, who later became the director of the new African-American Museum. And, that's, and he's doing the publicity now right. for the museum, yeah, yeah. Lonnie Bunch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lonnie Bunch, um, him seeing them back in 1999. Which was a stroke of luck for you. Right, right. Because no matter how important these photographs are, you've got to get somebody's attention who's in a position of authority right, to right. make the decision to say, yeah, we want this in our museum. Right, yeah. Lonnie Bunch was the guy, and he saw them in 1999, and even though he was at the uh, Smithsonian American History Museum and then went to another museum in Chicago, he remembered these. And so... It's, I mean, it was a really, really long process, a decade long, more than that, of continuing to research, continuing to get little magazine articles here and there, and uh, just little snippets of information um, until um, 2012 when um, Paul Zing, the president of Chico State, uh, Trey Robinson, who was the director of diversity, um, and inclusion, and Joel Zimmelman at the Dean of Humanities pooled their resources to um, make large-scale prints of um, about 36 of the, of the negatives, and we had to show at Chico State. I had the pleasure of seeing that exhibit, and it was absolutely fascinating. I could have spent an hour in front of each photograph just taking in every detail. It, it, they, I've been told it was one of the most successful and well-attended shows at Chico State um, in recent history. Um, People, I would go, of course, (laughs) I went more than (laughs) once, Um, and and also the, uh, and people would just be standing there looking at these large-scale blow-ups. I mean, originally the pictures would have been just five inches by seven inches, but by having the original negatives, uh, we were able to blow them up to 30 inches by 40 inches, 40 inches by 60 inches, and they, people would stand there and I, a couple of people commented to me that it was like walking into these people's lives. And so it was just a fascinating thing to watch. And there, um, after the show closed um, a few years later, uh, another an organization called Exhibit Envoy has taken on the show, and it's opening in Houston. Um, You're taking your show on the road. Yes. So to speak. <laughs> yeah. And at the end of our 16 double run in Houston and at the end of the year, and also, the Smithsonian got in touch with me after the Chico State show, and that started a whole other process. Well, um, I want, since this is radio and we can't show on the radio these photographs, I'd like you to describe uh, the photograph that's on the cover. And remind people, my guest is Douglas Keister. He is a photographer and prolific author, and we're talking about his book, Lincoln I mean Lincoln, Nebraska, in black and white, 1910 to 1925. And this photograph on your cover, it looks like a family, maybe a father and mother, three children. What did you find out about these, this, I'm going to call them a family, were they? It was actually two families. It was the Collies and the Malones, and they became very um, influential in uh, the Urban League, um, became uh, uh, other family members, uh, moved to California. Um, these were... Obviously, people can't see this picture, but these are people. They're nicely dressed, very fashionably nicely dressed, dressed, tastefully dressed. Smiling. Um, yes. It's a well-posed, well-lit photograph. Um, it, it, it speaks volumes about what was called at the time the New Negro Movement, 
which was to elevate and uplift the status of African Americans in America. That this and this, if there is a photograph that typifies that, it's this photograph on the cover. Um, these are look. Although these people are have very humble lives, you know, they're, they're cooks, they're draymen, um, they're just um, you know janitors, but they are dressed to the nines. Well, now your title is black and white because most of the faces are black. You also have uh, white people in there, but this photograph itself is not black and white, and that's what I would expect <laughs> it to be black and white. What color would you well, call that? That's a sepia color, yeah, um, th which was more of the style of the times, um, kind of a, a yellowish brown. Um, one of the things I'd also like to point out, we did call it, you know, Lincoln in black and white because there in my collection are a number of white people because the neighborhood that most, not all, but most of the photographs were taken was an integrated neighborhood. And it was full of African Americans and immigrants, uh, including my ancestors, which were German Russians. So they were all living together in harmony. Um, and also part of this, you know, if we, we could talk for hours on this, but one of the, the, the picture you're looking at right now, which of course yeah, people can't see. Yeah, I opened your book to page 60. There's a photograph of some black children. But well, there's, the well the, there is a white kid on the side. And uh, so that shows you that it's an integrated neighborhood. The picture is of a family group, you know, children. But the, this kid way off to the side wasn't intended to be in the final photograph because it would have gotten cropped out. But it's a good thing she is because she is probably a German-Russian kid. And also part of the process of this was across the street was a guy, a white family. And I have spoken at length uh, to the guy that lived in that house. Uh, and he lives in uh, uh, Southern California. My guest is author and photographer Douglas Keister, who had 60 of his photographs selected for inclusion in the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. We'll be back to continue our conversation after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, author and photographer, Douglas Keister. In these pictures, a lot of them are outdoors. So these kids are in front of a house, standing in front of the porch. This young, fair-skinned, fair-haired little girl is looking at them. Mm -hmm. And there, there's a, and it looks like a little girl. So three of them are standing, of the children in the photograph. There's a young boy sitting in a chair with a child in his lap that looks like a beautiful little girl. Right. It's actually a little boy because the style uh, w within all cultures back then mm -hmm. was you dress uh, girls and boys in the same clothes for the first couple of years of their lives. Um, that we have identified everybody in that photograph, uh, which is just uh, that's just an incredible to be able to reach back 100 years and figure out who these people are. The little baby um, was... Uh, uh, Lonnie Thomas, and he became a championship golfer in Nebraska, a black man. And uh, he, opened, he had a— uh, Which was very unusual. I mean, very even look, unusual. Tiger, Tiger Woods, yeah. people thought were shocked at that. Yeah, and that, this was in the 1930s. And here was, in the 30s, here's this young little black kid that uh, becomes a championship yeah. golfer. And, and then his daughter, uh, uh, Deborah Thomas, becomes um, a singer in L.A., and, and she— has performed with Lionel Richie, uh, Dionne Warwick, and a, a whole list of A performers. And I've interviewed her at length, and she has some incredible photographs herself. So 
I mean, this really is a, a great treasure hunt. I mean, sometimes it's very frustrating because you think you get close to something, and, and but other comes times— comes to a dead end or what seems come, like a dead end. Right, yeah. And other times, um, like the other day, somebody calls me up, and he says, my name is uh, Walter Colley, and my father— Now, that sounds familiar because the cover, the cover photograph. <laughs> yeah, and he, he, he was on my website because I have all the photos on my website, and he said there's a number of pictures of people with furs on— um, the uh, hand, uh, what are they, mufflers, muffs, mu muffs, muffs. And, and vests and uh, collars and stuff. He said, my father made those. Oh so, yeah, it's just all of these little things. Um, so one of the great things about having these now on the national stage at the Smithsonian is that more people hopefully will see them. And because, you know, the, the, the clock is running. These, these are, people are getting older. Yeah, I mean, all of the, there's nobody. Not the, not the adults that were in these photographs, the but children. their children are getting older, and yeah. the grandchildren are getting older. And so the clock is ticking for you to solve some of these mysteries. Yeah, yeah, and there's uh, there's a lot of mysteries, uh, but but there's a lot of rewards, too. I mean, the things we found, I mean, the one of the first pictures that was uh, published was in Newsweek magazine, and somebody saw that. A picture of a bunch of kids on the bicycle, and he was a, the man that saw the picture was a radiologist in in Atlanta. He saw that and recognized it as his father, the little kid, and so oh, that opened doors. We found they were Lebanese Americans. Um, so that, once again, it was a a really good time piece, a time stamp of that neighborhood, that immigrant neighborhood in Lincoln, Nebraska, where everybody was living in pretty good harmony. My guest is Douglas Keister, and his book, his collection of photographs, were published in uh, the Images of America series, Lincoln, uh, because these photographs were Lincoln, Nebraska, Lincoln in black and white. And you have a photograph in the very the first page of your book, really, that is not a part of the other chapters. And I was wondering why you put a hairdresser on the very first I mean, it's an elegant photograph, and I love her dress. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. Um, and her hat. It's a woman on a porch. Leona Dean, right. hairdresser. And she is, like you said, very, it's such a brilliantly composed Isn't photograph. It? I mean, this is a professional doing this. This is not some, some snapshot. I love it because she's reading a book. And yes. that is another great example of the New Negro Movement. It was all about education and elevation. And that photograph, says it all. I've actually, I've actually used this photograph, and I, I've paired it up with an Oprah Winfrey quote about it was reading that got her out of her circumstances. And so I think that picture and that quote should be in every, you know, every school in America. But, you know, I'm not in charge. So, <laughs> but I, it should be. So Yeah, to show this elegant young woman reading a book. She's sitting on a porch, perfectly lit, yeah. composed, and so are so many of these photographs. Yeah. A, a number of photographs have people with books, and that's mm -hmm. I mean that that says a lot. I mean, it, it, you know, you can it's the old picture is worth a thousand words, and that they, they, they each tell their own little story. And the fact there's so many outdoors, uh, I'm surprised that the lighting is so well done when you're photographing outdoors. Yeah, and so once again, the photographer knew what, what he was doing. I mean, they're all photographed in the shade, which is where you want to take portraits of people outdoors. You don't want bright sun. Squinting in this. Mm -hmm. And to be able to figure out the exposure without an exposure meter, <laughs> to figure all that stuff out, I mean, it's it a, it a professional work. Um, even though he's, his real job, you know, his paying job was a janitor. So he was not... You know, he didn't have like a shingle out that said John Johnson photographer. This is something he did for the community on, on his own. Well, some of the photographs uh, include dogs. Yeah. And that seems very realistic. There's one with this delightful oh. young man, young boy with this smile on his face. He's got a dog on each side. He's flanked by two very well-mannered dogs. And, and if you look at it real closely, it's such a natural photograph because his little sweater is his button crooked. Oh. <laughs> button crooked. <laughs> the sweater so, is misbuttoned. Yeah, so, but that gives it an authenticity. You know, it's not tremendously posed. It's posed just enough. And the photographer had enough good sense to say, let leave it, it. <laughs> leave it, because that's, that's a kid. Yeah, it's a great photograph of a kid. And that's also one of the reasons that uh, if I were looking at, or when I did look at these photographs in the exhibit on the Chico State campus, I could stand in front of one single photograph for the longest time because there's so many details that would would uh, be 
delightful, surprising, yeah. enigmatic. Yeah, and, and once again, because we have the original negatives, we can blow them up and you can see all the details. You can see what people are reading. They see what, you know, wedding invitations, the print on them. You, you, know, you, you can see what people are eating. Uh, the, the wealth of detail is, is just incredible. Uh, and here you have just a house, uh, the Johnson House on A Street in Lincoln, Nebraska. That was another key because we were, we were able to zoom in on it and see the address. And, and, on, and Ed Zimmer, once again, I have to give him tremendous credit, has access to the city directories. And he was able to determine, yes, that's the Johnson House. That's, that was built by Harrison Johnson, his father, you know, who was the only black soldier in an all-white <laughs> regiment. <laughs> In, in a civil war. I mean, just little things like that give it such a, uh, an authenticity and a realism. Yeah, because you mentioned that a couple of them uh, were former slaves. Yes. And Civil War veterans. Mm -hmm. And we don't think of maybe a black regiment one, but very uh, such a rarity. Yeah. And yeah. yet here these, these were Civil War veterans. Matter of fact, there's another, the guy that I mentioned lived across the street from one of the photographs, has done a tremendous amount of research into uh, some of the black uh, soldiers um, that were from the Nebraska Regiment and also the Kansas Regiment. So that's, once again, you, you got this other person kind of unrelated directly to the photographs, but he's doing a tremendous amount of research. Um, Stan Schmunk is his name. Schmuck. You even include a little bit of the history of uh, the town itself. It wasn't originally named Lincoln. Yeah, it was Lancaster. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we did little little tidbits like that kind of give it that you know a little more readability and the history part of it, and a little bit about the university and uh, you know how it is today. And um, it's uh, it, it's been an incredible fifty year journey. And you mentioned that, that speaking of uh, university, University of Nebraska. And you said that um, John Johnson played football. Yes, yeah, the for the University of Nebraska. Yeah, the the photographer played football while he was there at the University of Nebraska. He was attended for a couple of years. Once again, this was during the you know the the New Negro movement, which was about 1900 till about the Great Depression, and it was you know becoming very integrated, becoming, yeah. and then when the Great Depression hit, all that changed. And because it <clears throat> took years later before, say, football teams were integrated. Right. Be, the, the football came, be, team became segregated, where there was these great strides being made during the New Negro movement, and it all came crashing down at, in, during the Depression. You mentioned that um, some of these photographs that you particularly like, you like the one of the hairdresser, and there's a photograph of the mother and son, and it seems like I remember that was rather prominent in your exhibit at the university. Yes, we, we uh, selected this one of it's a, a mother um, on the porch with her son, and she's holding his head. Mm -hmm. She's got this great big smile. She's actually moving a little bit, and he is dead. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't look dead. too happy. He's actually, not too Doug. happy. And once again, by being able to zoom in on it, we can actually see the streaks of tears on his face. You can just barely see it in the small picture, but on the yeah. large picture, you can see these little white you know, salt you know, of dried tears. So, um, but it's called, you know, mother's loving touch. And so, you know, she's comforting him. And you can or, just create your own story about, you can well, create, why is he sad? He yeah. wanted to go play with his friends. Yeah. Maybe and his mother said, no, son, you've got to get him getting this picture. Yeah. Or yeah. who knows what she, but she's got the <laughs> smile on her face and this comforting. And that's where you can see a little bit like her hand move because it's slightly blurred. Yeah. So maybe she was patting but, his But cheek. he's dead still. <laughs> he's not moving. <laughs> <laughs> and she has high-button shoes on. Yeah. Oh, it's just her, yeah, the dress of some of these photographs are just incredible. Well, this is just such a delight that all these photographs are gathered in this book, uh, Images of America, Lincoln in Black and White, 1910 to 1925. So for people who can't make it to Washington, D.C., mm. a lot of people do go to Washington, and I think yeah. they'll want to put this on their itinerary to see this museum. Right, right. Um one of the things I should mention is the Smithsonian uh, exhibits maybe be maybe one percent of what they actually have, but these photographs are in multiple exhibits, so uh -huh. it's yeah. really quite an honor, and they will continue to be on multiple exhibits as time goes on. Well, I certainly enjoyed looking at your photographs, Doug. Thank you. Thank you. After a break, I'll be talking to local author Anthony Peyton Porter. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. 
I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. And I'm back with columnist and essayist Anthony Peyton Porter. Nitpicking. Language can drive you crazy if you let it. I know I'm a little peculiar when it comes to words, and I try to be broad-minded and open when it comes to bad diction and sloppy usage. Sometimes I succeed, sometimes not. For example, I look at butts with a critical eye. No snickering. I tend to look at language generally with a critical eye, and I'm especially interested in butt and other words that set up contrasts like although and however. My objection is that the contrasts are usually misleading and often false, but is especially insidious. One of the most common misuses of but is in phrases like poor but happy, which assumes that one wouldn't ordinarily expect a poor person to be happy, that somehow poverty and happiness aren't usually found together. And so the use of but is justified to highlight the contradiction inherent in any poor person's happiness. Of course, but isn't justified in this example, and perhaps not in most of the contexts in which it is found. Blonde but smart, simple but beautiful, compassionate but conservative, dumb but educated. But is nearly always a poor choice when one is trying to simply impart information without a slant. Try this. Many students take that test, and some do well. Then, many students take that test, but few do well. As a description of what happens with the test, both statements may be true, depending on how we define few. Let's assume that they are true. The first sentence states more or less plainly what seems to happen. The second sentence puts a negative spin on the same phenomena and serves perhaps to discourage prospective test takers about their prospects of excelling solely as a result of the speaker or writer's subtle assumption about that group of test takers. As a parent, I'm curious about the ways our opinions and premises are affected by suggestions. And so I'm out on a constant butt watch. I attend to commas too, serial commas in particular. Serial commas are the ones before the final conjunction in a series. The Twin Cities, Berkeley and Sacramento. In this instance, the serial comma is all that stands between the reader, namely you, and the erroneous notion that Berkeley and Sacramento are the twin cities referred to by the first item in the series. The use of serial commas is fading fast in mass media, promoted primarily by the Associated Press Stylebook and Libel Manual, which should be ignored by anybody with a fondness for clarity. Popularity is not commensurate with quality. Thus, we got VHS tapes, commercial television, Microsoft, and Facebook. This essay is by Anthony Peyton Porter. It's called Nitpicking. And you point out the fact that we use the word but when so many times it's uncalled for. Almost always, actually. Sometimes just a comma would do. Uh, and, and... But I, I, and is usually a, a much better choice than but. And I still, and sometimes it jumps out of my mouth and I have <laughs> to fix it. <laughs> well, I can just imagine paying a compliment to somebody. That dress looks nice on you, but. <laughs> and whatever comes after that but. Is not going to help. Is right? not going to help. And it would be so much nicer to put the word and in there, or as you say, a comma in right. there. <laughs> and that would change the whole complexion of that essay. You have some um, essays that uh, I really, well, I liked your essays anyway, but there's one on Martin Luther King. And I hope you would like to read that, uh, Anthony. This is uh, an essay on Martin Luther King that you wrote in 2010. And this is on page 
199 in your book. I don't remember Martin Luther King Jr. because I never met him. If you never met him, you don't remember him either. What I remember are monochromatic images, a few speeches, and some stuff I read. That's not a man. That the Federal Bureau of Investigation tapped King's telephones and secretly, secretly recorded conversations and planted agents in his organization and tried to drive him to despair with threats so he would commit suicide doesn't surprise me. If the FBI were even a middle-class white man, it would have been locked up long ago. One of the things the FBI found out was that King liked women a lot. Mostly Coretta, but definitely not just her. Some people seem to think his marital infidelity invalidates his achievements. Those people are stupid. King always wanted to be a preacher. He started college at 15, and when he got the call, he answered. He didn't dodge the hard parts, and he didn't just organize marches and demonstrations. He led them, like generals used to do back when they had to be brave. He wasn't afraid to die, unlike many spurious Christians, and after the dream speech in 1963, the FBI said he was the most dangerous and effective Negro leader in the country. The FBI director referred to King as degenerate and disgusting in correspondence. A draft of a letter sent to King calls him an, quote, evil, abnormal beast, close quote, and suggests that there's only one thing he can, he can do to avoid public exposure of his fraudulent self. Soon King came to realize the relationship of poverty to war and imperialism. And in 1967 in New York, he said, quote, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today is my own government, which wasn't common knowledge like it is now. The FBI says that it always gets its man. And in April 1968, after all black police and firefighters were transferred away from the 2nd Precinct Fire Station across the street from the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee, and King was relocated to a room there that was more open to view, and four tactical police units in the area were reassigned away just that morning, King was shot dead on the balcony. The official version didn't make much sense. And that's not unusual. For example, John F. Kennedy, Lee Harvey Oswald, Fred Hampton, and Mark Clark, the Waco siege, wounded knee, and 9-11, for starters. James Earl Ray did time for the killing, but even the King family didn't think much of that. In 1999, a civil jury in Memphis decided that Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated as part of a conspiracy, quote, including agencies of his own government, close quote. That quote is, what, is from what Jim Douglas wrote in the spring 2000 issue of Probe magazine. I have never met him either. This is Anthony Peyton Porter reading from his collection of essays, Can He Say That? 100 from the Edge. You close that essay with, I've never met him either, and it happens that I have met Jim Douglas, and I'm a fan of his writing. He is a thorough researcher, and he started out writing about these people who were assassinated, and his publisher said, we can't publish a book with that many pages. <laughs> no, because he had, well, for one thing, this conspiracies that he wrote, right. and so he had to divide the books that he was going to write into three separate books. And his one on Kennedy, for example, was 400 pages of text and 100 pages of notes. So uh, I'm, I find his, his writing uh, very a, interesting. That's impressive. Yeah, he's good. He, it is impressive. Now, you have an essay on Jesus that you wrote, and this is on page 180 in your book. And uh, anything you want to say before you start this essay <laughs> on Jesus? <laughs> Uh, no, I think it speaks for itself. Okay, let's hear that one. 
Jesus. I grew up in the Episcopal Church, and on the ceiling was a ginormous fresco of God as an old man with lots of flowing white hair. Uh, I'm going to start that over. Jesus. I grew up in the Episcopal Church, and on the ceiling was a ginormous fresco of a God as an old man with lots of flowing white hair. A white man, needless to say, but I will anyway. Spaced around the nave were paintings of the Stations of the Cross, featuring a matching Jesus with flowing brown hair under his crown of thorns. In all the stories I heard in Sunday school and elsewhere, Jesus invariably came off as a simpering, masochistic wuss. I thought I knew what turning the other cheek would do for me. He got points for throwing the money changers out of the temple, but money changers may have been chicken back then, and in situations like that, if you weren't there, you don't know. Why a guy who could heal the sick, feed the multitudes, and walk on water wouldn't save himself from an agonizing death eluded me. So he was a crazy wuss. I suppose knowing what he knew made him seem to act crazy anyway, especially since he wouldn't quit talking about it. I considered the possibility that he was mythical, that he was simply a literary character cobbled together from various hoary stories. I read what I could find, and I still think it's anybody's guess. The Jesus story is similar to those of several other mythological figures and may well have been appropriated. I don't care. What I care about are his messages, namely love one another, including your enemies, and share what you have, and live and let live, and treat people well and kindly, and anyone can find the spirit and kingdom within. Anybody. Jesus was a socialist. Those few guidelines sum up Jesus for me. And I say that knowing full well that nobody wrote down anything about him until he was dead and long gone. Not to mention that all of the people who did write about him had their own expectations gleaned from whatever they had heard from other people who probably had never even seen Jesus of Nazareth, much less talked to him. And they wrote in Aramaic, which way later was translated into Greek as in, it's Greek to me, and then into Latin, for Pete's sake, and eventually into flowery and now archaic English, and hip-deep in agendas and egos the whole time. After all that, I still feel confident in saying that Jesus was a heck of a man, ideally or historically, take your pick. And one of the best things about him is that he wasn't a Christian. Anybody who, support, who supports killing and says he gets Jesus is a liar. And you know he and Mary Magdalene had a thing. This is Anthony Peyton Porter reading from his collection of essays. This one was entitled Jesus. And as I said, your essays, we barely scratch the surface of uh, what you express opinions on that people may say, oh, can he say that? <laughs> Can he say that? <laughs> Can he say that? So uh, I'm glad that you have recorded this for a new generation of readers who might have missed your column from the edge that appeared in the Chico News and Review. Heaven forbid. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the title of his book is Can He Say That? by Anthony Peyton Porter. And, and I want to welcome Anthony Peyton Porter back. Hi, Anthony. Hello. Uh, because so many of your essays are timeless, but there's one that you might want to update, and that is your essay on Black History Month. Do you have any updates for us? I do. One, anyway. Black History Month is here again. More official segregation. There go the usual suspects. Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, Booker T. Washington, Ella Baker, W.E.B. Du Bois, Martin Luther King, George Washington Carver, Fanny Lou Hamer, a little Malcolm X, some Oprah, and now some Obama. No mention of Nat Turner, 
no Jackson State shootings, no Martin Delaney, no Marcus Garvey, no Franz Fanon, no Jamil Abdullah Alamin, no A. Philip Randolph, no COINTELPRO, no Tuskegee Experiment, no Asada Shakur, and definitely no Mark Clark or Fred Hampton or Mumia Abu-Jamal. Not to mention no Walter Williams, Thomas Sowell, Shelby Steele, Glenn Lowry, or John McWhorter, at least not yet. So Uncle Bubba gave us the shortest month. No surprises there. Hundreds of years of cruelty and lies and omissions and lies and misdirection and lies versus Black History Month. That ought to do it. I have mixed feelings about Black History Month. First, it should still be Negro History Month, since nearly all of the list were Negroes, capitalized, if you please. I like the attention paid to Negroes who weren't performing artists or athletes. I have nothing against athletes or performing artists, but they get year-round attention. So if now and then somebody learned something he didn't know about a Negro he'd never heard of, that's probably good. On the other hand, Black History Month is still the colored water fountain. When is White History Month? If you modify history, it doesn't count because it's still his story, if you see what I mean. You've got to quote history, no rewriting, no paraphrasing. Otherwise, it's a special history on a special shelf. My biography of Zora Hurston is never with other biographies. It's in the colored section, as usual. History can include many voices, but it doesn't have to. Describing reality is mostly deciding what to leave out, and an all-inclusive history is unattainable. Nobody knows what you were doing in the moonlight on that picnic table that time, and history is incomplete without that information. Since history is always incomplete anyway, you can relax. I can imagine the end of Black History Month. When I hear booming rap music in public, it's usually coming from a white man's pickup truck. And my sons learned urban black slang from their white classmates. That's major melding. Every time I hear a little white child say I be rather than I am, I smile. That kind of cultural appropriation is a far cry from equality or justice and the grammar makes my eyes bug out, but it is a sign of something new. Not only are we all individually different, generations are different from the ones who came before and in ways we can't know in advance. Lucky for them. And this is essayist and creative writing teacher, Anthony Peyton Porter, reading his essay, Black History Month. Thank you for the update, Anthony. You're welcome. And I would also like to thank my first guest, Douglas Keister, who had photographs of his selected for inclusion in the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. Now we're presenting a new segment here on Nancy's Bookshelf that we're calling The Writer's Room, where we're featuring short segments by North State authors. It's called Under My Hat. On the corner, I meet a sharkskin suit with a button-down collar and a paisley tie. He's smoking a black cigarette. His monocle is cracked. His hands are shaking. How are you, I ask, and he replies, I'm walking around with all this stuff under my little Homburg, all this cranial carnage, explosions, everyday limbs ripped away, the dark god laughing my head off till John discolored demons scrambled up my throat. And how are you? Oh, I'm just fine, I say, as I brush the bats away from my sombrero. This is Bob Garner. Blizzard. Words fall, snowflakes landing on the mountains of my lips, sticking to the bed of my tongue. First, words stick softly like a treat. 
then begin to bury in the chill of verbosity. Suddenly, from the peak of my intentions, an avalanche of words, spilling down my chin, catching on my teeth, a landslide of language, a flurry of words. Megan Irene. Next life. For my next life, I'll need a volunteer from the audience. Something in a 36 long would be nice. Something in an endless line of sleek black cars with a coffee bar in back and exhaust that tickles the nostrils like sweet juniper trees in the first cool hour of evening. Someone who will stand erect and unashamed before the committee and not name names. Something in a self-propelled auto-tune disaster that would drive anyone's parents off the deep end. After so many years, you'd think we'd understand the complex second stage of the secret handshake, or know where to get a good sandwich in these parts, or at least know enough not to risk the lives of all 63 members of the submarine crew by diving to the bottom of the ocean in search of a bell the captain heard, or thought he heard, in a dream when he was only seven years old. Troy Jollymore. For more information on the writers you've just heard, go to mynspr.org and click on the poetry link. to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.